Welcome to our third talk of this year's faith, Winter Faith Session. Uh, our speaker this afternoon is Father Ross Campbell. Father Ross is a priest of the Archdiocese of Glasgow, having been ordained in 2010. He studied politics and philosophy at the University of Glasgow before going on to study for the priesthood at the Pontifical Scots College in Rome. Since 2014, he has been chaplain to the University of Glasgow, which, as you all know, has the best university Catholic chaplaincy in the UK. <laughs> as well as vocations director for the Archdiocese. This afternoon, he will be speaking on the virtue of hope. Father Ross. Walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you will never walk alone. If you are a Celtic or a Liverpool fan, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with those lyrics. If you are of a certain vintage, like Monsignor Burke, you will remember when it was a number one hit for Jerry and the Pacemakers. When they sang that song, though, I'm pretty sure they did not have in mind the theological virtue of hope. Nevertheless, to some degree, these lyrics encapsulate what we are going to talk about this afternoon, you see. For the Christian, hope means that we are, in actual fact, never alone. And hope is, in fact, a virtue we must walk with, in the sense that it is something for our earthly pilgrimage. It is the virtue that helps us on our way as we cross the rough terrain of this life. It is the virtue that gives us a sense of perspective, particularly when we encounter adversity. Anyway, more on this in a moment. As a way of a roadmap of what I want to say this afternoon, we're going to look at three particular areas. Firstly, what we mean by this virtue, what we mean by Christian hope, theological hope, and its place in our lives as, lives as believers. Secondly, we'll look at how it helps us, in particular, how it helps us with two aspects of the Christian life, conversion and vocation. And then we will finish by looking at a concrete example of hope. But first, let's remind ourselves of what we've covered so far. We're into the, the third talk now. So human virtue, we were told by Father Dillon, is the habitual disposition to do the good in concrete circumstances. Okay? Both St. Thomas Aquinas and before him Aristotle, they locate virtue as being the mean between two extremes, which are vices. For example, if we take the virtue, the human virtue of courage. It's the mean between being cowardly on one extreme and being reckless or foolhardy on the other extreme. And because in many respects, the extremes, the vices, are more attractive to our fallen nature, therefore disciplined practice is required in order that these virtues become habits. We need to be trained in virtue. In order to become courageous, we need to do 
brave things. Theological virtue, then, is something more. It's something more than human virtue. Because we are made in the image of God, we are created for greatness, and we are created for a life with him. To be good, to do good, is to live in accordance with our human dignity and identity as God had made us body and soul. And yet, there is even more again. Because God created us for a purpose. And he has a plan for each of us. And we will speak a bit about this shortly. And so then, to live virtuously is to respond to this vocation. That is, the God who created us doesn't just desire that we be good. He actually wants more for us than this. He seeks relationship with us. He calls us to friendship with him. He calls us to communion. To not live in communion with God is to not be fully human. Something is lacking. And in fact, we know this because this was man's original state, as the Catechism tells us. The first man was not only created good, but was also established in friendship with his creator and in harmony with himself and the creation around him. This is what the Catechism refers to as the original state of holiness and justice. There was within us an innate desire and ability to know God. Of course, this did not last long. The original sin was a breaking off of this relationship. But God, who is love, then begins his great work of restoring and healing this damaged relationship. And we see more again from Scripture. God doesn't just want us as friends, but he wants us as family. He seeks to adopt us. This is how close the Lord wants to be to us. St. Paul clearly understood this. In love, he destined us for adoption to himself in Christ Jesus. God wants to adopt us. He wants us to be part of his family. He calls us to be his sons and daughters through fellowship with Jesus Christ. So strong is God's desire for us, that when through faith we know this, as Sister Andrea was saying, it gives rise to hope. And this hope is the cause of our joy. This is our true destiny. This is the greatness for which we are made and to which we are called. But because of our fallen nature, God has to take the initiative by grace. Such a noble vocation, such a marvellous gift, demands a response from us, and God makes us capable of making this response. Because by ourselves, because of our wounded nature, we find it difficult to believe, we find it difficult to trust and hope in God, and we certainly find it difficult to love God as he deserves. But we hope because we believe in what God has revealed to us. And because we hope and believe we're able then to love as God calls us to love. And that's what Sister will talk about tomorrow. 
So God then grants us these theological virtues so that we can make this response. He desires us as his family and he gives us the means to respond to that call that he issues to us by granting us the theological virtues. They are not like the other virtues because they are given to us freely by God through his grace in baptism. So we say that they are infused rather than acquired. Because the point is, we are not just created for a successful earthly life. Because in actual fact, it is only through participation in the very life of God do our own lives become fully realized. And for this, we need the help of God himself. This help is granted through the infusion of the theological virtues which enables the divine life to take root in our souls as the Catechism speaks to us. But the important thing is that while we receive these virtues in baptism, we don't receive them in a merely passive way. We are meant to accept this gift and then develop it. And this is how a human life becomes a Christian life. This is how we become fully alive. That's why it's good that you're here and you take these days to prayerfully consider the theological virtues. So then, let us turn to the theological virtue of hope. Perhaps one of the most drastic effects of secularism has been the loss of hope. Or at least it has been misrepresented, perhaps as being something foolish and naive, a sort of blind optimism. And there are several theories as to what has caused this the tragic events of the 20th century, the nihilism that comes with post-modernity. We speak about the hopeless generation, and we see it. We have record levels of suicide, especially in men. You look at so many of the movies that are produced now, the dystopias. I was watching just a couple of months ago this movie, Bird Box. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about everybody is blind and it's disastrous, and people can't see. That's what despair does. It creates a blindness, a spiritual blindness. Hope is lacking. Cynicism and despair are prevalent. All the more essential then, isn't it, that we become witnesses to hope? Because hope is essential for human flourishing. Without it, there is mere nothingness. Hope gives purpose and meaning to our actions. So let us now turn to the subject of this talk. What do we mean by hope? I think, first of all, it's helpful for us to make a couple of distinctions. First of all, what hope is not, and perhaps the difference between what we mean by human hope and theological hope. So hope is not mere optimism. Optimism is the inclination to be cheerful, confident, and not easily disheartened. 
I wouldn't say I'm a particularly cheerful person, but I do have hope. So there's a good example of that distinction. <laughs> but human hope is an attitude whereby we direct our wills with a certain confidence to what is yet to come, but not yet present. It is not necessarily, or it doesn't have to be, optimistic. Rather, human hope can soberly examine difficult situations and come to understand them. And when you think about it, day by day on a human level, we hope for many things, some of them good, some of them bad. I hope that you will manage not to fall asleep during this talk, especially if you've been to the pub. The sick person hopes to recover. Those afflicted by war hope to live in peace. Hope as a human virtue strives to attain these things when we perceive them as being good. So then, how do we understand hope as a theological virtue? Well, it's a gift. It is the gift from God that enables us to purify all our aspirations and desires, what we might call human hope, organizing them, prioritizing them in relation to our ultimate happiness which is union with God in heaven. It makes beatitude our main goal and our top priority. God then is both the reason and the object of our hope because hope as a theological virtue is directed toward the imperishable happiness of heaven and therefore, it affords us joy even in the most difficult of circumstances. Hope has to be the mark of a Christian. It has to be what makes us different from others. Pope Benedict sums this up quite nicely in his encyclical on hope, Space Albion. The distinguishing mark of Christians is the fact that they have a future. It is, it is not that they know the details of what awaits them, but they know in general terms their life will not end in emptiness. The one who has hope lives differently. The one who hopes has been granted the gift of a new life. Hope then is that which animates our earthly pilgrimage as we journey towards our true end, communion with God. So it is set on God. It is anchored in Jesus Christ, and it is stirred up by the Holy Spirit. It is grounded in our baptism. We have it. Our task then is to understand it, to practice it, to exercise it, to develop it. To live in this age, I think, with any semblance of serenity, we must use well the virtue of hope that has been infused in us. Hope helps us on our way to respond to what, as we have mentioned, God has offered us. Friendship, <coughs> adoption, <coughs> communion, and ultimately, beatitude. What God offers us is demanding, no doubt about that, but achievable. 
but for hope to be fruitful within us, for it to be activated within us. I would like to suggest there's something we can do to aid this whole process. Seek to be magnanimous. Great word. What is magnanimity? It means greatness of soul, largeness of soul. Magnanimity, not easy to say, guides our thoughts and actions to great and not petty things, to things that truly matter and are truly honourable, even though they may be difficult to obtain. The magnanimous person seeks lofty goals and is not disturbed if others do not understand or approve of it. By contrast, the lack of magnanimity is smallness of soul, acedia, is when we allow ourselves to become overly influenced by our culture, we focus too much on the petty things of this world, or on the other extreme, we overshoot the mark and become prey to presumption, a rash expectation of salvation without making use of the means to obtain it, ambition or vainglory, are preferring to be less great in order to avoid the call that God has issued to us. It's too much. It's too hard to do. This is smallness of soul. It's really, I was thinking about this this morning actually, when this idea of smallness of soul, it manifests itself in that thing that Pope Benedict spoke about, practical atheism. It's like the majority of people, it's not that they're atheists, but they just go about their life as though God is not really essential. He's in, in the background somewhere, and I'll maybe think about him as I get towards my deathbed. That smallness of soul. We have to be witnesses to greatness of soul. Magnanimity. To be called and chosen by God is a call to greatness. And this is the object of our hope. As I've, as I've mentioned, it is important to know that this call is demanding, but also that it is possible. Because the fulfillment of our hope has been promised by Christ. And while we are not yet there, we are very much on the way. Moving toward this goal gives purpose to our lives because we realise that our lives are not aimless, but heading in, in a direction that is defined by God's will and implicit in our created nature. Christian hope, as St Paul reminds us, does not disappoint because Jesus has gone ahead as a forerunner on our behalf. Christ's victory spurs us on. The magnanimous person is attentive to all this. Being magnanimous helps us to move from despair to hope as we start to recognise all the opportunities that God grants us so that we may grow, to repent, to receive forgiveness, which we will have an opportunity for this evening, to be sustained, the grace to persevere. The more we realise all of this, the more interesting and purposeful life becomes. The philosopher Joseph Pieper says, supernatural hope 
gives man such a long future that the past seems short, however long and rich his life. The theological virtue of hope is the power to wait patiently. Seeking to be magnanimous then helps us to move from hope being a fleeting moment or an act to being a habitual disposition because I choose to set my life, my plans, my actions around the Christian good rather than worldly goods. Hope then enables us to set out on our way to that true end which alone fulfills us, union with God. And thus, we pursue all other human activities in reference to this true end. When this virtue is active, the hopeful person in all things will seek to ask themselves, does this or that activity bring me closer to God or push me further away from him? You see, one of the things that hope does is it enhances our freedom. We no longer see the demands of God as something constricting, but something liberating, because we have our eyes firmly fixed on our true end. We understand freedom as being a freedom for something, rather than a freedom from something. And so when challenges arise, we don't give in to despair because we know that the pledge of future glory has been given to us. Of course, this all sounds good in theory, but for theological hope to truly be active within us, for us to develop and entrench this disposition within our minds and within our souls, we have to be willing to give over that thing that is most precious to us, our time. We have to give our time to God to contemplate these promises he's made and to the life which he calls us. So with all this in mind, I would like us now to turn to two aspects of the Christian life where the theological virtue of hope is particularly helpful. Conversion and vocation. So hope and conversion. As we have said, communion with God is our ultimate goal. Christian hope helps us to remain focused on that goal by helping us to prioritize all of our other hopes and desires and subordinate them to this goal. More importantly, hope teaches us to rely on God for help in all our needs because he is fully aware of both our limitations and the lofty goal to which he's called us. And so because of this, God has committed himself to helping us with his grace to reach our true end. The God of Jesus Christ is not distant. He's close and he seeks to be involved in our lives each day at every moment. The life with Christ that we are called to begins with baptism, but nevertheless, it must be lived day by day. This means conversion. It means a constant turning away from sin and returning to the Lord. A lifelong process by which we radically seek to reorientate our whole life. And because it is lifelong, it can seem grueling and unappealing. But it is necessary if we are to receive his friendship. 
And God knows that we need conversion, and he knows that we cannot seek it on our own, so he takes the initiative. In his mercy, he extends a hand, always ready to lead us back. The Catechism says, Conversion is, first of all, a work of the grace of God, who makes our hearts ready to return to him. The virtue of hope allows us to see this is real and to let the truth of this statement change our lives. Because if this is the extent of God's love for us, this call to adoption, then truly we need not doubt that he's going to help us out. Hope teaches us that in all things, including forgiveness and conversion, God will take the initiative. He comes to meet us where we are, and he gives us the grace to do what we are not able to do by ourselves. And I want to give just one concrete example of this that we find in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus cures the blind man at Bethsaida. So I'll just read this passage, it's quite short. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This passage, I think, shows us the dynamism of conversion, which should beget hope in us. This miracle is recounted only by Mark, and it's quite unique because it has a number of distinguishing features, if you can picture the scene and imagine the details. First of all, it takes place in Bethsaida, a place that had Jesus had already condemned for its lack of faith and the refusal to respond to him. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Perhaps this is why Jesus takes the blind man and removes him from that place, that faithless place. We hear this, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And just think about the way in which Jesus would have led the blind man. Think of it when you, you walk with a blind person. The way one leads a blind person is, of course, to walk side by side with them, holding on to their arm. This is what Jesus would have done. The Lord couldn't pull him or drag him, but would have had to slow to his pace to gently guide him out of the village. He would have needed to explain to the blind man where they were going. He would have warned him of obstacles and dangers in their path. And once they got out of the village, the blind man was separated from his skeptical friends. Jesus sets about curing him. We are told this came about in a pretty gross way through saliva going into the man's eyes, but it comes about by physical contact. We then hear of a confusing response. I see men, but they look like trees. It sounds as though his sight was partially restored, but his vision was still distorted. And of course, this is meant to be an analogy for the blind man's faith. He is not yet there. He has not yet been able to completely trust 
in the Lord. It's not until Jesus touches his eyes a second time that he is able to see clearly. Then the Lord sends him home, asking the man to avoid the village, the place where there is a lack of faith. Why have I mentioned this passage? Is the fact that the blind man is not cured immediately due to the Lord lacking power? Well, of course not. Rather, there are some important lessons here for us in this miracle that should fill us with hope. The blind man receives his healing in stages because that is the only way he's able to. Bethsaida had been condemned as a faithless, faithless place. It was not an environment conducive to healing, so the Lord guides the blind man away from it. It is not so difficult to imagine that this faithless place would have had an impact on the blind man. Perhaps some of the attitudes of the place have been entrenched in his mind and heart. Isn't the same true for us? The external attitudes of our culture can quickly become interiorized in our hearts and minds. Removing these obstacles more often than not doesn't happen all at once. Rather, just as in case with the blind man, repeated contact with Jesus and his saving touch removes obstacles and heals wounds over time. We too must allow him to lead us away from our sinful environment. What should give us hope in this passage, though, is the realisation that Jesus is patient and understanding as the man goes through this process. The blind man doesn't see straight away, but the Lord continues to be at his side and continues to work with him and through him. The point is, this is the real measure of Christ's love for us. And it's this that gives us the ability to hope. Of course, this miracle is merely a glimpse, though, of the true depths of Christ's love, which we know is fully realised on the cross, where he loved us to the end. But the passage shows to us, and so should give us hope, conversion is a messy, painful and ongoing process, but we take hope in the fact that the Lord does not abandon he has loved us until the end. He stands by our side with his healing presence. He is always going to persevere with us. Let's always persevere with him. That's the source of our hope. The more we read the Gospels, the more we read and let the miracles of Jesus seep into us, the more we are exercising this virtue of hope that's been infused in us. The second way in which hope can help us, I think, is in terms of our vocation, okay? As some of you know, I spend most of my time, most of my week with undergraduate students, and for this I hope to get time of purgatory. <laughs> but one of the things I've noticed with, with the, my students is the word discernment is one that is often overused and misappropriated, mentioning no names. I need to discern whether or not I should have another cup of tea before I return to my studies. No, you need to decide that. It's not the same as discern. For discerning the will of God, 
is the most important thing we can do. And so, for this, the virtue of hope is indispensable. We have already mentioned that by the virtue of being made in the image and likeness of God, each of us is called to beatitude. But within this overarching vocation, each one of us is called to serve the Lord in a more specific way, to build up the kingdom through serving him in a particular state of life, either through the ordained ministry, the consecrated life, marriage, or the single life. And we know that all these vocations work for the good, for the building up of the kingdom. So coming to understand our specific vocation is a process we call discernment. This, we know, is not easy. Time, distractions, confusion, mixed messages, temptations, these all work against us as we try to come to know where God is leading us. Why? Because the thoughts that come into our head can originate from a number of different sources. From the world in the form of distractions, from the evil one in the form of temptations, from the selfish ego in the form of desires and appetites, and from God in the form of inspirations. Discernment is about learning through experience and right judgment the origin of the various thoughts that we have in our minds and hearts so that we can come to know whether or not they are from God. Thus, we must listen carefully to the voice of God in prayer and in the circumstances of our daily life. Only when we come to know his voice will we know what he's asking of us. This all sounds simple enough, and yet we know it is a difficult process to hear his voice when the distractions of the world are so constant and so compelling. So what does hope have to do with this whole process? First of all, hope keeps us aware that God exists and that he in fact has a plan for us, that our lives are not aimless, but rather they are tending toward a definite goal along a specific path that the Lord has mapped out for us. As the prophet Jeremiah says, The Lord plans for your welfare, not your woe, so as to give you a future of hope. Theological hope also reminds us that as we discern, it is not our responsibility to create our own vocation, and neither has God hidden it from us or put it out of our reach. God is waiting to reveal both himself and his plan for us. Hope ultimately tends towards happiness, as we have said. The realisation that this is what God calls us to gives us confidence that he's genuinely concerned for our good, not only in the next life, but in this one as well. Especially important when we face adversity. God is not trying to trick us. He merely asks us, to listen, and he will lead. St John Henry Newman, I think, is a good, good example of this. He's come up a few times over these days, but it's a good, concrete example of this dynamism between hope and vocation. As you know, Newman became a Catholic in 1845, and this came at great personal cost. His conversion meant that he had to resign his livelihood, leave his home, 
and become estranged from most of his friends. In his Meditations on Christian Doctrine, he wrote on the theme of hope, and I quote, God knows what is my greatest happiness, but I do not. Thus God leads us by strange ways. We know he wills our happiness, but we neither know what our happiness is nor the way. We are blind. Left to ourselves, we should take the wrong way. We must leave it to him. Let us put ourselves into his hands and not be startled though he lead us by a strange way. Let us be sure that he will lead us right, that he will bring us to that which is not indeed what we think best, nor what is best for another, but what is best for him. So practising the virtue of hope in terms of our own discernment means striving repeatedly to trust that God knows what he's doing, even when, even when what we should do is not clear to us. To trust that God has a plan for our lives, even when it is not yet evident to us. The only reason to despair is if we convince ourselves that we are supposed to fulfil our vocation by ourselves. One final remark on hope and vocation. Although discernment is essentially important at your age and youth as you choose your state in life, but our vocation must be lived out day by day. And this requires the continual conversion we spoke about earlier as we seek to discern and listen to the voice of the Lord. As disciples, we are given the responsibility of making Christ present by what we say and what we do. This means he must be in charge, not just of the general overarching plan of our life, but of every step along the way. It is said that we don't like change. We don't like to step out of our comfort zone or be away from that which is familiar to us. But if God changes our lives substantially, it's in order to send us where he wants to be, not simply where he wants us to be. He chooses our course precisely because he is coming with us, because he is dwelling within us and wants us to be present where he sends. Theological hope helps us to understand and accept the changes God makes in our lives. Finally, coming to the end, you'll be pleased to know. I want to just finish up by giving a concrete example of hope. Um, and I, some of you probably heard me talk about this person before. But when we are immersed in hope, we see everything in light of eternity. And so we gain a broader and deeper perspective on daily life, <coughs> especially when we're confronted with challenges and especially when we are asked to carry the cross. Countless saints we know over the ages have shown us how to carry this cross. However, there's one in particular I find quite inspiring um, and I want to just say a little bit about him. He is Venerable Cardinal Francis Xavier Van Thuan. If you've not heard of him, he is a Vietnamese bishop. He was appointed the Archbishop of Saigon just before the fall of South Vietnam in 1975 to the communists. And so quickly after the fall of Saigon, 
He was arrested. Obviously, communists don't really like Catholics, and that sort of thing tends to happen. And he would go on to spend the next 13 years in prison, and nine of them he spent in solitary confinement. At one point in prison, he became totally overwhelmed by fear, and he writes about this in, in his books. And he wasn't able to pray, he wasn't able to cope with darkness, he wasn't able to cope with light, and he felt he was losing hope, as, as anyone would. Then one day, a parishioner via a guard, hidden in a bottle of stomach medicine, sneaked in some small drops of wine and some hosts. Now Van Tuan then, from his prison cell, in the palm of his hands and from memory, was once again able to celebrate the Mass. And quickly, hope returned. He was able to cope with his interrogations. He began to pray again, and he worked as a priest. He converted many of his inmates. He even converted many of the guards, so much so that they had to keep moving them from prison to prison, because these prisons were all becoming parishes. <laughs> and like St. Paul, he secretly started to write letters of encouragement to the persecuted Catholic community, asking them to heroically persevere in their faith. Now, Vietnam is still a communist country, but the faith is thriving there. And I wonder how much that is to do with this man. Although his own personal circumstances are extreme, there is a dynamism about Van Tuan's situation that in fact implies to us all. The great source of hope for him, what was it? It was the Eucharist. It was the Mass. When once again he was able to celebrate the holy sacrifice in the palms of his hands. When we approach despair, when we are overwhelmed or full of anxiety, when we feel darkness in our lives, as hard as it may seem, this is when we most urgently need Jesus in the Eucharist. This is when we need to gaze at him in the Blessed Sacrament. It's when we need to give him all our fears and anxieties and allow him to once more fill us with hope. Because in the Eucharist, Christ is always near. He is always present. He is the source of our hope. He is the pledge of our future glory. I'll just finish with this quote from Cardinal Van Tuan. Just as the sun shines brightly, shedding its light on the earth, so too does the Eucharist shine as the light for the spiritual life of human beings as the source of peace and hope. Thank you.